Welcome back to Like a Bigfoot Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ward. I am beyond excited for this week's episode. Um, we're going to sit down. We're bringing Ryan Wanless back on the show. Ryan just completed the 1,000-mile Iditarod Trail Invitational um, on foot, which is mind-blowing. So he went from Anchorage to Nome, the same trail that the Iditarod uh, dog race goes on. And he did it completely on foot. It took him 26 days, 5 hours, 44 minutes. It is really hard to even begin to comprehend what that experience would be like. Uh, And I'm just excited that Ryan gets to come on today and kind of try to share some of the stories. Um, I always think it's, it's hard. Like, you know, this dude spent nearly a month out there and he's going to try to like recall those adventures in an hour long podcast. So I'm sure we're just scratching the surface here. Um, But this episode is awesome. And Ryan is just an absolutely amazing human being. Uh, If you haven't followed his journey, we've done a bunch of episodes together. Uh, I randomly reached out to Ryan on Facebook way back when, like years ago at this point, uh, after he completed the Arrowhead 135, uh, which was the year where it was during the polar vortex whatever that means, but really ridiculously cold. Uh, So he completed that race, really cold. Then he told me, he's like, man, I want to do the Iditarod. Uh, He did the Iditarod 350 twice. So we did episodes about that. And then I remember after one of those episodes, he's like, hey, man, it's hard for me to even like put this into words but I want to do the thousand mile Iditarod. And I was like, whoa, what? And he was like, yeah, it's definitely a lifelong dream of mine to be out there to do the whole entire thing. And I want to, I want to get it done. And to hear him say that a few years ago and to see and like follow his journey and see his pictures and, and, see him finish you know like see that he finished this event is that's the part that's inspirational to me because this is a guy who set a a humongous goal like a ridiculously big goal and then went after it and ultimately took the steps in between that led him to the point like scaffold him to the point to get it done Uh, as a as a teacher, we have all these, we have this thing called scaffolding, right? Like you have a concept, you're trying to get a kid to learn and you have their starting point and you have to like slowly work them up to the point where they're going to be able to get uh, to that understanding. And I think with, with uh, being able to watch Ryan's journey, you could see it progress where he was able to get to the understanding where he was able to kind of like build up his adventure knowledge to get to the point where he was able to successfully finish the thousand mile Iditarod. And I am psyched. So let's get right into it. Um, buckle up, everybody. This is Ryan Wanless talking about 
traveling on foot from Anchorage, Alaska to Nome. This is awesome. Let's do it. All right. I just want to start by saying a huge congrats, Ryan. Like what you accomplished is mind bending. And I know it's like a huge, huge thing that you've been working towards over the last few years. So, so huge congrats, man. Like I, I'm so excited to hear, um, obviously I've had you on in the past to talk about, uh, all sorts of winter ultras and specifically the Iditarod 350, which it's hard to comprehend. You just did like <laughs> that was only one third of what you just did, which is wild. Yeah, I, I, I feel the same way. Um, after each, each 350, it was just, um, you know, that was tough. And then to kind of grasp that uh, this year I'd have to not only finish that, but then do it two more times, um, you know, really played in the back of the head, made, made you nervous and, uh, um, just, you know, all, all your friends are like, yeah, go out and get it. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you're just thinking like, it's not, it's not that easy to go out and get it. It really, uh, statistically speaking, um, the odds are not in my favor of, of completing this. Yeah. That's so, well, so real, like, I guess we'll start here, but we'll obviously go back a little bit, but what was going through your head? when you got to it's McGrath, right. For the three fifty, Correct. Yeah. Yeah. What was going through your head then? Like, did you feel relief? Like once you passed that point or, or was it like kind of like a dauntingness? Um, you know, there's a, there was a ton of, of different thoughts on it. It was, you know, of course you want to at least get there to start with because Otherwise you'd be taking us, you know, a step back because I've already made it to McGrath. And then, um, you know, once you get to McGrath, it's a lot of people have the tough decision of, you know, a lot of people do sign up for the thousand. And then once they get to McGrath are just, you know, like I'm, I'm complete. I feel good. Um, I'm okay with just calling, calling my race over in McGrath, you know, and then the, you know, there's people that just signed up for the 350 and they get there and they're, you know, all smiles and, you know, like toughest thing I ever did all, you know, all this other stuff. And you're over there, you know, trying to get your stuff dry, trying to eat, um, you know, make sure the trail breakers kind of went in front of you, just all this other stuff to set, set up the other, you know, two thirds of your race. You kind of looked at it. It was like, I've got to get to McGrath. And then after that, you know, Ruby's a big, um, a big checkpoint. And then you have to get off the Yukon. And then that's kind of, you know, what I looked at it um, as my race is kind of, you know, three, three pivotal points into just continuing forwards. So, you know, you get to McGrath and, and you're trying to eat and you're listening to stories of the other three fifties. And uh, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a different feeling. And I remember being in the three fifty and sitting there, you know, when a thousand person came in and then went back out and you're just thinking like, man, that guy's tough. You know, one day, I, one day I want someone else to, to look at me and just, 
you know, feel like they had the craziest experience in the 350, but yet this guy's going to go out and do two more of these, you know? So um, it, that was kind of some motivation to at least look like you were put together at, at the end of the 350. So those people just, you know, weren't completely scared, but you're, you're, you're a little bit nervous and a little bit freaking out. And the, just the trail beta alone for that other two thirds of the race is almost non-existent. Yeah. You, you know, you've get some names of some towns, a little bit of this and that, but for the most part, you know, everything was just, just new, you know, they talked about safety cabins and this and that, and as you'd get to one, you'd be like, Oh, well that that's what one is, or, you know, these towns and they, they call them towns or villages. And once you got there, it was uh, like, Oh, okay. This is a village. You know, it's like 45 people here in eight houses. Um, and you might be walked through there at night and they never, they, they might not ever know, you know? Yeah. So it was just all this, the stuff that was just so new, new to you. That's wild. What, um, did, do you think it helped like having that experience of being obviously in so many ways that helped having the experience doing the 350, but like just in that specific moment when you're sitting there, and they're done for the day and you're just getting ready to go back out. Like you had that perspective of like, I used to be, that's where I was. And I knew maybe it was like, I knew at that moment I wanted this. And that was probably a pretty good reminder. Absolutely. And um, the 350 that we did in 2020, you know, it's pretty amazing that we look back at it. And I think every single foot well maybe four out of the five of the foot finishers in the 30 days were in that 2020 field of of people um and then 2020 was just a really really tough year for the 350 we saw the moose we saw the snow we saw you know we just saw the high winds we saw the negative 40 degrees we we just saw everything yeah so i think you know that that really helped um you know, prepare all the foot people for, for the thousand. Um, it just, there wasn't a whole lot of surprises. I'd say the biggest surprise this year in the first 350 was once you got to Rhone, depending on where you were in the order, the, um, the, the river with the Chris, river, or I can't pronounce it, but that river kind of was open on the far end. And some people were waiting anywhere from mid mid thigh to you know ankle deep water going across um there are some videos out there of a guy you know skiing in you know probably eight to 12 inches of, of water and so that going into that that was that was the most water we've we've had to go across in the past it was short stretches of a stream where you could see the bottom or you knew yeah. just this but this was you know kind of overflow on ice and well you hoped it was overflow and you just had no idea. So that was kind of, I'd, I'd say that was kind of one of the big eye openers in the 350. But after that, you know, there was some, some humps, we call them that snowmobiles put up. They look like moguls going down the trail. So that was rough for like 80 miles. And then there were some, some bare spots of, of dirt that we didn't see in two, 2020, but everything else I felt like, I felt like we saw in, in 2020. So it was, um, it was all just digging back into that toolbox that you have of information and knowledge and experience and just, just getting through it. I felt like I got through it really, you know, really well, the first, yeah. first 350. Yeah. So tell me, so you're crossing the river, there's water on top of ice. Is that what you're saying? 
Correct. Yeah. And the river's deep. Like if you go in, I don't, I don't think it's that deep, Okay. but I think like you could get into a, if there was a bend, you, you know, it could mm. be, I don't know. It could be shoulder deep in a, a few spots, probably most areas it's between your ankle and your knee, Yeah. but you don't, you don't know, you, you know, um, you've never been on the river. You don't, you just don't know where's what. And, uh, you know, there, you just see a, a stake with an orange tip on the other side that says that's where the trail is. And <laughs> yeah. then it was all glare ice. So it was blowing like 40 miles an hour. So your sled, once you stepped out on that river, that sled was out in front of you because the wind blew it around. So that sled's kind of dragging you across the river to open water. And you're just sitting there, you know, when do I put my, we wear these things called wiggy waders that you can just pull up and hook onto a belt and they go up to, you know, mid over, just over mid thigh probably. And, um, you know, you're sitting there going like, well, when do I put those on? And then you're just like, geez, if I sit down, you know, with my sled and everything, it just might blow me across this ice is so, um, you know, it's just so perfect and there's no snow on it that it could just blow me right across and into the water. So there was, you know, there was all these things going and I waited until light, um, to, to go across some people left earlier in the morning and you know, they had, they had a lot more trouble than, than what I did. Um, yeah. but again, I wasn't in any hurry. I was on my thousand mile pace. I stayed in Rhone until it got light. And then, and then went across when I knew that if trouble happened, people would, you know, be coming down the trail f- fairly soon to, to help out. Yeah. I think Ryan, if you ever, I was, you just said thousand mile pace. I'm like, great title for like a book, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, oh talking- yeah, that ran, it ran. We, we said it out loud a lot, you know, <laughs> like anytime it was talking about hurrying up or this or pushing or this or that. And we just had to remind ourselves, you know, we're X amount of it in front of our thousand mile pace to, to finish. Um, there might've been at the beginning of the race, two guys on foot that were really racing it. And I feel like everyone else just, you know, just wanted to, to finish it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I can't imagine. I, I imagine most people are like, this is such an epic challenge. There's no, just, I mean, obviously just finishing is like the most incredible accomplishment ever, you know, that's yep. so cool. one. Yeah. So before the podcast, you were telling me, you were on the waiting list. So can you kind of explain that whole story? Because it's not like, and you, you've been preparing for this, obviously through your experiences over the past few years, but it's not like you knew you were going to go race like six months ago. Yeah. So in um, 2021, I'd signed up for the thousand and had been accepted. And then they canceled that because of the COVID but they offered everybody a chance to go to the 350. So I went back and did the 350. Um, it was just an out and back. You went to Rhone and back. And it ended up being, I think my GPS put it at 365 or something. Some people, I think their mileage was 380. Okay. It was uh, it was just a kind of a different, a different year for for everybody. But then once that race finished, um it was like two weeks later where all of a sudden, you know, I just hadn't been paying that much attention, I guess. And two weeks later, I saw a message being like, you know, we're opening registration at 10, 10 a.m. Alaska time. And I was just like, well, I just finished, 
you know, you know, I was, I was, I knew I was going to do it, but you had to, you had to come up with money and, you know, all this other stuff. And in years past, there was never a hurry to register, you know, you, yeah. you had your weeks or whatever you wanted. But um, what I didn't think about is all the people from other countries that couldn't come in in 2021. Oh, we're all, we're all sitting there waiting for 10 AM Alaska time. And it was going back to the Northern route, which is about 40 miles, I believe less um, than the Southern route. The Iditarod dog race switches between a Northern route and a Southern route every year. So with the Northern route, um, you're on the river, the Yukon river a, a lot less. And um, in terms of the history, it has more finishers than the Southern route. So I switched back to the Northern route and then all the Europeans um, that weren't allowed in, in 2021, um, you know, were sitting there with, with their money ready and their finger on the keyboard. And by the time, let's see, I think it opened at like 10 AM Alaska time. So maybe by noon Alaska time, I was just like, okay, I talked myself, you know, into it. Let's just, let's just do it. Yeah. And it, and when I went in, it was sold out. No so I sent way. a message to the RD saying, Hey, if you have any spots opening up, um, you know, I'd like to be on the wait list. And they said, oh, okay. You know, and, um, I think it was maybe six weeks before this race. It was the week before the week of Arrowhead basically. And I got an email, I was in bed at night at like 10 o'clock and I opened it up and I just showed my wife the phone and she's <laughs> like, you know, if you want to do it, do it. And I was like, okay. So I emailed the guy back and, or the race back and just said, I'm in, but I will, you know, I can't pay it up to tomorrow. I'm, I'm already in bed. And they said, okay, no problem. And so in the morning I got up and set my money in and then, you know, officially, officially was in the race, but didn't really want to say anything because, um, for the most part, because I was going to, um, to Arrowhead that week and yeah, Arrowhead's yeah. always been a, the Arrowhead 135. It's always been a special race for me. Really enjoy it. And I just wanted to focus on that because even though it's a shorter race, it's, you know, just as tough, um, you know, all the above apply to it. So as I was focusing on that, I think the Thursday or Friday of that week, they updated the, the entrance list and the people are so connected that by the time I got to Arrowhead, people, you know, people had seen my name on the list and were talking about it. And I, I was kind of just like, I just want to get through Arrowhead. And then, so right away after Arrowhead was done, um, you know, I kind of called my parents and other family and said, Hey, you know, I'm going to be gone for months. So don't worry if I don't answer my phone kind of. Don't worry. Don't worry. Kind of. <laughs> I'm only going to be in Alaska in the wilderness, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, dude. So one, I want to hear this really quick before we come back to the Iditarod, but you know, you've talked about winter ultras with me and, uh, I'm definitely like, I, it, they just sound so intriguing and I, I need to, uh, jump on board at some point, but I've talked with you, I talked to you and Kari last year, um, and I've talked to a handful of people. Um, do you think this aspect of ultra running is growing or is it still kind of like a smaller kind of like side community in this whole thing? I think it's, I think it's growing a lot. Um, there's a, there's a couple new races that, you know, that have popped up. There's one called the St. Croix and it's a 40 mile 
and that sells out within the first hour. And that's kind of a jumping point um, to get into basically a Tuscobia, you know, or a drift or, or something to that extent. And, you know, it gets people, people interested in it. And, you know, you get a lot of the questions of like, well, how much of, you know, the 135 miles do you run? And I'm just like, I, I don't run a step, you, you know? Um, and then that also interests people, you, you know, um, especially if you're a little bit of a gearhead, uh, you know, you know, stuff like that. If you're not, if you're not very fast, this kind of takes out any of the pressure of, of that because both Descobie and Arrowhead, as long as you're moving, you have plenty of, plenty of time to finish. And, um, I, I, and the drift has been selling out, I believe in Wyoming. Yeah. I, I, I think in the future, you'll see a couple more of these feeder races kind of, um, you know, pop up and, and people really, really get into it. Just the ultra running in general is really, you know, really diversified. I was reading something on Facebook today of the race for the ages, you know, someone being like, can I just walk for 55 hours since that's how many hours they give me because of my age, I've never done an ultra before, but I'm curious to see how I could go. And, you know, it's just, to me, that's super exciting that, yeah. you know, people, it, you make it at your own race, they put down the parameters and you just go out and, and have fun. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be a competition always. So, um, and on these winter ultras, a lot of times you kind of, after the first 10 miles, your pace is the same. You kind of buddy, buddy up, you know, one person might stop to go to the bathroom and you might not see that guy again for another two hours, but then you're getting something to eat and he comes up. So you still get your alone time, your peacefulness, um, you know, the sound of the sled dragging behind you, but you also can make some really good, good friends in these, in these events too. Yeah. Yeah. So when you, uh, you, you got, you get in and then is there anything in the back of your mind that says you're not prepared because you only had a month and a half or are you like, no, nah, this is what I've been working towards? Yeah. I'm more of the, you know, this is what the last four or five years yeah. have been. I've never been a, a great get up and train every single day, follow a schedule, be in the best shape of my life. I've always been, I'm carrying 10 extra pounds. That would really be nice to lose. Um, you know, I've been all that, but I know for, for these winters events and stuff, um, you, you know, you don't have to be in that, in that great shape or at that great weight. You just, you just really have to, to want it and not, um, and not just give up. I'd say most people in these, you know, there was, when we got to, um, Ruby, you know, we asked, Oh, oh how's so-and-so doing? And the, the host there said, Oh, you know, he, he flew home today. He, he got here and said for the last 150 miles, he didn't see anybody and, you, you know, just got a little lonely and just, just said it was good. You know, he just said, I'm good. Didn't envision it being that enjoyable being alone you know, for the next 600 miles or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of different mental games and head games that can, can play on the trail. So I knew, I knew from talking from other people that as long as my heart was in it and, you know, my head was in it, I, I'd be able to, to finish this race. Yeah. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you about. So it requires this like nonstop forward progress for days and days and days i think i looked up on the website you finish in 26 days five hours and 44 minutes and it's this intense focus on a goal for 26 days 
like how do you keep how do you keep your foot on the pedal for like almost a month you know what i mean like because that's it like if your heart's your heart has to be in it the whole time so you gotta like somewhat have your foot on the pedal moving forward yeah um but the difference in the goal is i wasn't looking at gnome is my goal every single day mm, yeah. um so, so some days it would be i need to get to this this place um if i get to here i can refuel resupply um because there's some point there's some i think i sent out five or six drop bags you know, you send them to general delivery to some village and they show up and they might, someone might go pick them up and have them in the corner of their house or a shed or, or something to that extent. And um, you're like, well, if I get there, I can get, get my stuff and I've got some more coffee in there or, you know, some Snickers bars or, or whatever you packed in there. Um, so a lot of times there's just micro goals throughout the day. It was, Hey, I want to get here for lunch. I need to get here for dinner. And, you know, if all is moving well, like I, I can get six to eight hours of sleep, you know, on yeah. this day, which is, which is great because, you know, the mileage might've only been 34, 35 miles. Cause I know tomorrow I've got to go 52 to get, you know, to get where I want to go. Um, we spent, you know, there was one night, I think on the Yukon where it's a 52 mile push in between um, basically t- town or towns and I guess not towns, but villages. And um, about halfway through, we all kind of just realized we got a late start that day. We didn't feel like going through the night. Temperature was really dropping and it would be just smart to, you know, get it in our bivy sacks and sleeping bags and just, you know, camp out for the night. No use just stumble around walking. So, you know, we all, we all had negative 60 degree bags. There was three of us at that time and we jumped in our bags. And I remember, I'm waking up to two of the sled dog teams that came by. Um, we just, you know, we just camped out there and the next day you just get up, reset your goals um, for that day and then just, you know, just keep moving. So no one was in the back of your mind, but it wasn't, it wasn't your goal. Like every single day, you didn't just see this needle move, you know, very little <laughs> towards your goal. So I think yeah. that was pretty positive, I guess. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that has to be the only strategy, right? Like if you did have the little bit <laughs> moving towards gnome, like if you saw what we saw, which was the little blue dot, I think it would be like, oh dude, what? It is insane. Um, I do want to, I did want to ask about the dog sledders. First of all, is it super cool to be able to like experience this legendary race i mean if people mention the iditarod like most people have heard of this event like is that cool to see the dog sled aspect of it like as you're going about it yeah i would yeah by far it was kind of the highlight of um you know the highlight of the whole experience it was i think we were just i think we made it through crip no just before cripple um yeah, I think it was just before Cripple. Um, you know, we got passed by by the first dog sled in like 6 a.m. in the morning or something. And, you know, so he's he's been sledding for I don't know how long. And he comes up on these three guys that at 6 a.m. are going through the snowstorm and snowshoes on the side of the trail. And yeah, you know, you, you can you can see a spotlight come in because it's still dark. And he doesn't get dark or light there to like eight or eight thirty in the morning, it seemed like. So we all grab our pulks, set them up on the snowbank because the trail's down like two or three feet. 
and he kind of just jumped up on your pole because we didn't know what to expect as he came by and you know he's giving he's putting his hand out for high fives and these dogs are going through and they're all smiling and it was just you know you're just like you've heard about this last great race and that's the sled dog race and then you're just like I get to see this this race unfold from a position hardly anybody ever gets gets to see and that's you know just randomly out on the trail and um you know so then after that and then it was like a a long time before the next dogs came by but you know i think there's 40 some dog teams and i don't know 35 of them passed us or something but it was you know there were the reactions of you know we were cheering on the mushers when they went by and they were just you know they were cheering on us too they're like we're gonna see you gnome you know and you're just like yeah you will and then like you start thinking about it like no you'll be gone two weeks before i get there but um and then sometimes these guys i think the the bigger kennels would have like planes that would fly to different checkpoints and kind of support the mushers and some of the the smaller mushers that would have like two or three snowmobile teams you know that would come in behind I i don't know the route i don't know all the logistics on it so there was a little bit of snowmobile traffic and you'd run into these guys and you know they're they're having a good time got lots of food and all this other stuff and they'll sit and chat with you like you know they're like telling you you're nuts and you're just going well you know it takes you know when you meet someone out there everyone's a little nuts i'm i'm sure but um you know they're all pumped to get to know them usually it's rookie crews on a snowmobile so they're super excited and they're high-fiving you and um i guess that that's just like minutes of your day but it was still nice it was a still big pick me up to see and and to really think about so that's amazing man i i did want to hear about like what do you think are so having done this for three years um in in various like levels of it what is there like commonalities amongst the people who are out there like obviously you all love it or you couldn't be out there but like, is there like common personality traits or anything like that? Uh, I, I would say there's some that are stronger than others, but you could, you can, you run into people that are almost complete, like introverts um, yeah. at, at check stations. They, they come in and, you know, they're so regimented on what they do and what they eat. And you, you might try to talk to them and it's just, you know, gen- general conversation a little bit not but you know not like sitting down and get getting to know people um and then you have people that you know you leave a checkpoint with and you know their kids names and their dogs names and every everything they do um you know people i i think people are all out there for for different reasons personal to them um some share the reasons with you some don't but everybody's you know you can't even at the first checkpoint in the 350, you can't look around and, and be like, you know, everybody here isn't, isn't the toughest of the tough. Um, you know, everyone's deserved to have gotten in and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're there for a reason. So, yeah. yeah. How much of the race were you by yourself and how much were you partnered up? Cause I know you mentioned, and I think Emily, like she was updating, everybody on Facebook and the blog, uh, she was mentioning a couple other guys with you, like, were you by yourself for some of it or, or mostly with others? Um, it, I guess it's yes and no. The, the first three fifty, you just went out. Like I just, 
I just went out and, and completely did all my own pace. And um, you were around other people, but very rarely was I like follow like five feet back from s- someone's sled. I, I would say that was almost zero, zero of the of the time out there. Um, most of the time, I felt like you know I was by myself. You might be with someone for half hour or forty five minutes, and then one of you might stop and mess around in your sled, you know, and then in 10 minutes you look up and they're just gone. You yeah. know, you, you just can't, you don't see anybody. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of the 350. And then at the, once we got into McGrath, um, there was a couple of us that we were always within an hour or two of each other at each checkpoint, you know, and we kind of chatted about strategy like that. But the next morning, one guy went out at like 10 and I think, yeah, myself and the next guy, I think we left at like one o'clock or, or something. And we started out together and we were probably with each other for like four or five miles until one of us ducked into our sled. And then, you know, we didn't see each other, but um, I think that was me that slowed down. And then at 11 o'clock at night, I come up and one of them sleeping alongside the trail and my headlight searches up further. And I see the other guy, you know, they both had bivvied there because it was after a long long uphill pull and it was there's no wind up up there is really good protection so i just went down right in between the 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 two of them and then the next morning we all pretty much got up at the same time and started um started going and throughout that day you'd come around the corner and maybe a guy would be sitting there on a sled having his lunch and you'd sit down and chat with him and then maybe the other guy would catch up yeah and then you'd all three leave and you know within an hour you wouldn't see you wouldn't see each other until closer to dark. And then, you know, you might travel two hours together. So it didn't, on the, I'm sure the dots made it look like, you know, we were all together a lot of the time, but in, in all, um, in all honesty, we, we really weren't all within sight of each other all that much. So yeah. it seemed like maybe a couple, couple hours of the day you were in sight of someone, but most of the other time you were, you were just by yourself, it seemed. Yeah. It sounds familiar to when I've talked to people about like the through hikes where it's like, you're always kind of around the same group of people. And then at night camping out usually, but yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming for you, part of wanting to do this is a little bit of the, um, kind of like isolation or solitude that you would find out there. Um, and I'm sure that obviously once you get, once you get going, that's, you can't help but find solitude. It, yeah, exactly. Um, you get, you, you get your solitude, you get your conversation. Um, you, you know, you kind of, you kind of get it all. I was just, I was kind of laughing because I listened to some, some music, some podcasts, some, um, audible books. It's funny. I listened to, I listened to Shackleton's book again. And then nice. all of a sudden I get a text you know, from the wife being like, Oh, they found his boat. Yes. Oh, that's awesome. That's crazy. And, but I was thinking like when it would get to negative 10 or so, I felt like the, the plug in my headphones w- would shrink because of the cold. So it wouldn't make contact. So anytime you bumped it, it, w- it would cut out. And I was like, well, maybe I should ask people what they did. And I was like, well, they're probably going to give me, you know, flack for listening to stuff and be like, well, just enjoy the nature. And I was going to be like, yeah, when you're on the Yukon river for three days and all you hear is wind, you know, I think I've had enough nature, so I'm ready to listen to a audible book or, or some music, but, um, yeah. 
Yeah, you, you, you get it all from just, you know, everyone has a like a Garmin in, in reach where, you know, you can send out a text message via satellite. And at some point, you know, I was just texting my wife, like, just give me any info, you know, is Ukraine and Russia still at war? Or, uh, you know, just sometimes you just kind of wanted just a little break. And so when you got into your sleep bag, you could just open it up and, you know, read 10 lines of something from the outside world, I guess. Yeah. I know it has to feel weird, like completely disconnected, you know, or maybe not completely, but really disconnected where it almost feels like you're in your own little world at that point. Yeah. And a little, and it's selfish too, you know, you, because she's always just asking about me and, you know, you realize you might go a whole day and not even ask her how yeah, her day yeah. went, but it was like, Hey, can you, can you get a weather forecast? You know, you, you knew who was in front of you, like what route did they take here? We're getting conflicting reports because all you have to do is get from checkpoint to checkpoint. It doesn't matter how you get there. Um, and depending on how the year is the trail, the trails could, you know, there could be splits in the trails or this or that, or even sometimes when you got into town, if you didn't cut off the normal trail first, you couldn't get to the, to the place that had your drop bag without doing this big circle loop. And, you know, when you were so close to maybe getting inside and getting a warm meal, you just wanted to get there as fast as possible. So you're like, Hey, pull up so-and-so's track. And do they cut, cut over, you know, on this trail and the inreaches weren't always instantaneous. So sometimes it'd be like 20 minutes later, you know, and you'd be like, Oh, I missed it. <laughs> um, yeah. How is How did Emily hold up throughout the whole thing? I feel like she has the utmost confidence in you. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think she always has more confidence in me than I do. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think, I guess if, I don't know, I think if you ask her, she'd probably say it was, it was rough, you, you know, and nervous from my end. It, you know, she looked like she, uh, you know, just did a, did a great job and was, you know, was very good at it and didn't have any problems. But I think if, if you ask her personally, she was probably like, man, that's a, it's a long month to have, yeah. have you out there, you know? So, and, and it did take a lot of, you know, a lot of work because of the time difference, you know, she'd be going to bed and, you know, sometimes at 11 or 12 o'clock and that's might be six or seven when I'm just getting into a town and I might be, you know, firing off a few text messages being like, Hey, uh, you know, it's confusing. Cause sometimes when you come into these these villages, I guess I keep saying towns, but villages, there might not be anybody up. There might be 20 dogs barking. They might say, go to um, past our brother Bob's garage and there's going to be boxes in the corner. And if you want to, you can sleep in it. And you're going like, where's brother Bob's garage, you know? And um, I, I think there's only one village that we went to that actually had a street sign, but you would get these, you know, the text would be like, oh, go up to so-and-so street and take a left. And in the village, there's just, there's just no street signs. So yeah. you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't know where it's at. And, you know, sometimes that was, that was a little confusing, but it's all, you know, in hindsight, it's all information that's learned and I guess earned. Um, so, it, you know, if you go back and do that same route again, you, you know, it cuts down on a lot of the unknowns and, which also makes it hard for a rookie to just go out there and, and crush the thing. Yeah. Just, you know, that's some information people keep really, really close to them and just don't, don't share it with everybody. Yeah. 
Yeah. Wow, man. That's yeah. There's so much. So in the second third, I guess, what was kind of like, I mean, now you're off into your unknown, like you just mentioned being a, a rookie at, you would consider yourself a rookie, right? Cause it's the first yeah. time a thousand miles. Okay. So being a rookie, now you're off into your unknown. What's like the biggest kind of challenge in that phase of the event? Um, I, I guess timing probably was huge. Just knowing when to leave a place to get to the next place. Yeah. Um, you know, knowing how to set that up. We we got off a little bit leaving McGrath, where if we would have left McGrath early in the morning, we would have it would have put us out the first night in a sleeping bag. And the second night we would have been able to make it to they call it a safety cabin, which are these just little like 200 square foot shelters and they've got like a little wood burning stove where you could fire it up and you know melt snow for water and you know eat your meal at least inside so you're not you know in a snowstorm alongside the trail trying to trying to boil water or or heat water to put in like an instant meal or or just you know skip your instant meal and you're just eating nuts or sugar or or whatever so if we would have got on that schedule that would have been a huge Cause once you get on, I think once you get on that safety cabins, um, drill, you know, it seems like the next cabin's like 40 to 45 miles away. So you could have hit up a couple cabins, but in that stretch, when we left McGrath, I think we did four nights out of all, all bivvying outside in cold, snowy weather. And when you got to McGrath or not to McGrath, but to Ruby, which I think was about the fifth day out from McGrath when you picked up your sleeping bag, it was, you know, probably a couple pounds heavier from just, just it absorbing the moisture, you know, off your body when you climbed in it at night. Um, you know, one night it was a snowstorm blowing. So you would, you try to get as protected as you can, but out there, there wasn't a whole lot of protection. So you'd lay facing downwind and have that hole for your face on the mummy bag facing downwind, but yet your head's tucked back in there. So as you're breathing, the bag's kind of soaking up some moisture, not to mention when you take your shoes off, there's moisture in your socks and you're just your body in general. So this bag is doing what it's supposed to do, keep you dry, but it's also accumulating this moisture that instead of being able to dry out the next day, you're stuffing it back in a stuff sack and keep and keep going. Um, and they say a lot of the like polar explorers that have to abandon their attempts is because their sleeping bags suck up so much moisture eventually they just lose you know kind of all their insulation abilities and that's when um people get cold and just you know just can't get warm all the goose feathers in there are are now damp or wet and your body just doesn't produce enough heat to you know to, to warm up in there anymore so um how do you prevent that experience. just dry it out every time you can is that kind of the strategy or yeah if you get if you, if you would get to the safety cabin you could pull your bag out you know, and with that fire going, you'd, you'd dry it out in an hour or two, you know, cause yeah. those, once you get that wood burning fire, it's, it's dry as dry can be in there. Yeah. And, and you could do that. Or once you get like in Ruby, we, they, they called it a bed and breakfast, but it was these bed and breakfasts are basically um, just a regular person's house that they might have like 10 cots. Yeah. And they just scoot them up against the wall head to toe <laughs> And, um, in Ruby, it was $200, but you got dinner and breakfast 
but it was just a, a cot in someone's living room. That's you $200 were, you ever spent. I bet <laughs> it, it was on the way, on the way there, you're thinking bed and breakfast. We might be one or two in a room and yeah, you know, all this other stuff. And then you open the door and it was like a child's birthday party going on and all these balloons. And there was one other ITI racer already there. And, um, you know, he just kind of looks at you like, you're not going to believe this, you, you know, and you sit down and there's some leftover pizza from the birthday party. And then they made a, what do they call it? Like a Mongolian goulash and, and, you know, all this other stuff. And then, you know, we, uh, we just took all our, all the, you know, basically all the clothes we've been wearing for the last five days and threw them all in the same load. And she was able to do our laundry for us. And, and then flipped it over to the dryer while while we tried to get get some sleep and then you know you wake up and then well first of all no one there wakes up early it seems like just because it doesn't get light to 8 30 so oh yeah and they're like oh what time you want you you know you want to get up and you're like i don't know 5 5 30 you know and they're like whoa that's pretty early you know and you're just like well, well i think we need to eat breakfast like what what time will you you know, can we have breakfast? And they're like, I don't know, seven, eight. And you're just like, okay, I guess it is what it is. <laughs> so, so you had that going for you there. Um, but uh, you just, it, it was probably better just if you just didn't have, you know, it, like they said, don't, don't even expect anything in anything yeah. you get, have it be a, a bonus is probably a better, a better way to look at it. It's like, you know, if you get somewhere and there's just nothing there or your drop bag doesn't get there, or, you know, there's some spots where the, the dog, um, for the Iditarod, they have tents and stuff set up and they'll let you come in and give you some hot water as long as they're not busy, but, you know, but they say, you know, plan on them being busy and, yeah, and just when you show up, you know, if they invite you in great, if not, just, just keep moving. Yeah. So it was really, you know, a really good lesson in just ma managing expect expectations. Yeah, for sure. That's why I tell people about ultras in general and porta potties. They're like, is there any porta potties there? I'm like, just expect that there won't. And then if there is, you're going to be happy. <laughs> exactly. You know, if you, if you go in here and there's going to be quesadillas at such and such, and you know, you're back in the pack and they've, they've sold out, you know, people got hungry and there's just none there to show up to that place and be disappointed. I mean, that's, that, that could ruin your race, you know? So you in just, your head. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have to go there and whatever's there is a bonus. Oh, I love that. I love just it's, and that's so true. Like I love the idea of like, this is just practice at managing my expectations here. Cause I do feel like at a certain point, if you expect, if you just expect that it's going to be difficult and that every like, there might be gifts along the way, maybe, but you don't know what they're going to be. That's probably a way easier mindset. I agree there. Yeah. I saw you had a Coca-Cola at one point. Yeah. Um, I'm trying to think where I got that. Uh, I was trying to remember. I might have. Oh, I got it in, in Uniclete. There's this um, Peace on Earth pizza joint. It was the only like real, I should say, restaurant you know, on the, on the whole trip where you could go in and just order pizza. And then they had some ice cream and, and some sodas. So I'd, I'd gotten the Coke. I have Coke to describe there, this. I'm looking at where Uniclete is and it's in the middle of nowhere in Alaska. Like it's on the edge of the ocean. It looks like. 
It, it is. It's the first first time you get a view of, of the ocean. But funny thing is, is there's one of those Alaska TV shows and they and there's a family. Um, oh, I can't remember the family's name, but they run the airport service there. Okay. And they've got a daughter that she does some of the flying of the planes and, you know, like the Discovery Channel yeah. follow, follows them around and, and does all that. And then on the side of that, they have a kid that's in the Ninja Warrior. No way. His name is the Eskimo Warrior or Eskimo Ninja or something like that. And right on the beach, he has built this whole Ninja Warrior training course. <laughs> so in this little town of... I don't know, four or 500 people, not much. Yeah. Um, you know, they've got two kind of like TV personalities no that, way. that live there. And um, his parents own the Peace on Earth pizza joint and they live, you know, right next door to it. And they've got like a little apartment that they rent out to people above it. Um, so it was it was really cool to, to kind of sit there. And there was some other Iditarod folks there eating um, pizza is like 32 bucks a pizza felt like it was super good deal you know just just great pizza great atmosphere um dude i'm was, look i'm looking up i want to look up the yelp reviews for peace on earth pizza oh i bet you they're all they're all five star for sure <laughs> they have to be they yeah, have to be yeah. there's no other choice you know <laughs> yeah and i thought you were gonna say there's a discovery show called like alaska pizza ice <laughs> road pizza <laughs> yeah yeah that's awesome man that's i mean did you know that going in i mean maybe you're hearing stuff out on the trail or whatever um it's this pizza joints like the one <laughs> thing that's talked about yeah. between between people just a just a ton of it um so yeah everybody's looking forward to to get to get to uniclete and the other thing when i got there is one of there was a czechoslovakian skier and he had mailed a drop bag. And when people drop out, you're free to go through other people's drop bags of, pe of people that dropped out. So I went through his drop bag and he had a little water bottle with clear liquid in it. And he had labeled it plum brandy. And um, I think come to find out, I, I think he, he said his grandfather had his plum trees and distills and makes this like homemade brandy. So when I was looking through there, I was just like, oh my gosh, huge score so i took that and you know just poured it in a glass and while you know after i finished my pizza i just sipped on this plum plum brandy from czechoslovakia which was uh which was amazing you know there's just few times in your life that you ever feel like you'll be in an environment like that so dude i so my wife and i uh we have a book like a note or whatever like a journal or whatever and in it, we've written down like our favorite meals of all time. And it's all that kind of stuff where it's like, I had a tuna sandwich, but I was on the ocean or whatever, you know, like you'll never yeah. have this again. It's not, it might not be the best take, tasting thing, but in the moment you're like, this was the best thing I've ever eaten and drank. And I feel like that is super unique where you're like at a pizza place in the middle of Alaska and had Czechoslovakian plum brandy. Yep. Yep. And, and, and the people that, you know, you're sharing this, this time and this food with also add to the ambiance of, yeah. of the place. So that's, amazing. that was, it was, it was a really cool place. That's so cool. Well, um, I do want to hear, I know the sea crossing is kind of the biggest, I don't know if you're, you'll agree with this having done it, but is, is that the biggest difference between 
the thousand mile and the 350? Like, is that the, cause that was like a new obstacle for you, right? It, it was, um, this year, the C cross was a little different because it was pretty much, um, you know, was, I guess it was icy. Um, I mean, yeah. of course it's icy, but, um, so that was a little different, but you know, it, it could, it just depends on where the, really where the weather hits going down the Yukon. If you're on that for three days and the weather's, you know, blowing in your face 40, that might've been the crux of the race this year. It happened, um, with that sea crossing, I think it's like 11 miles to like one little junky cabin on an, on a peninsula. Then after that, I think it's like 30 miles or something or 25 miles, you know, to get to the next village on the other side. And you're, you're very, very exposed, you know, other than some ice heaves and whatnot, if the wind all of a sudden kicked up to 40 or 50 and you had to lay down out there, it would be, it would be a rough night of, of wind. And then who knows when it stops. So once you commit, you really have to, but we, we really just took every day as that was the crux and of what you had to get through. And it wasn't like when we left Uniclete, it, it wasn't all thoughts on the sea crossing. We knew it was going to be tough. And when we left Uniclete, we made a decision to stop short. Um, well, one of us um, made myself and, and this other guy, Daniel, who we ended up finishing the race together. We made the decision to, to stop short because the sea crossing had been extremely, extremely windy. And so we, we stopped short and spent a night in a cabin and then went to the next village the, the following day, knowing we'd get there early. I think we got there at like four or five in the afternoon. No, I think we got there at two or three in the afternoon and got everything ready so we could get up at 2 a.m. to make the sea crossing because that was the best weather window. Oh. My, you know, my wife was checking the weather reports and was like, in the next three days, this is the least amount of wind in this time. And we also knew at night, usually it, it's a little bit more forgiving. So we started at, at, at 2 a.m. And that would get us all the way through to the next village that same day um, in the light. So, uh, so that was kind of our decision. And what was cool is by stopping that short, there was another guy that works at a bike shop in Anchorage. And he was actually one of the guys that developed this Baja divide bike packing route, but him and this other buddy who had been, um, who picked, who he picked up in, um, Ruby, they were on their bikes. So they were at the cabin before we got there and they'd chopped down a ton of wood and we were like, and we're like, Oh, you can use our sled to pull the wood back to the cabin to throw in the fire, you know, and do all the work kind of stuff. They were just like, oh, amazing. It saves us a ton of trips and blah, blah, blah. And then right before we were getting, we were kind of wrapping up, these two guys that had started on um, skis, they skied in from the north. They were doing a little, they were doing sections of the trail, um, you know, over a few year period to have skied the whole trail. So they skied down and, and got to the cabin. And then they were saying, you know, that the ice was so good on the, on the um on the crossing that they actually put ice skates on and skied and ice skated like 10 miles of it what you know, which is just you know just crazy to think about or to think that that's what you they would have planned for in advance <laughs> so they got to ski like our ice skate like 10 miles so there you know there's us myself and daniel who are on this trip north the two bikers that were there and then these two skiers you know, and, and everybody's just acting like it's a normal evening in a, in a cabin. And, 
and that was really fun to you know to kind of to chat about you know these different adventures that that we've all 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 have been on and and everything so that was a really a really neat um experience that that we got to have that's amazing man i saw um i can't even imagine ice skating for 10 miles though i was trying to think i'm like that would actually be like really really tiring i think well, the wind was blowing so hard out of the north when they did that Bering Sea crossing. Yeah. They said all they pretty much had to do was stand straight up and <laughs> blowing them at like 15 miles an hour. No. They said they were worried that they wouldn't be able to stop or if they fell, the wind would just keep keep blowing them. Um, so that was, you know, that was pretty interesting. But it sounded like they were just able just to like kind of get in a position and the wind just blew him for 10 miles it's amazing speed so that's incredible dude well so i'm trying to remember i think it was last time i i talked with you and kari maybe you guys were mentioning like hearing that there were like you know people having encounters with polar bears specifically on the ocean crossing part or the sea crossing part did was that did you have any, I mean, did you see any at all or was that a worry or, or what? Um, didn't, didn't see any, I would say it was no worry. Yeah. Um, I saw some bear tracks on the Yukon, but they were, they were pretty small around one of the islands. Um, another guy, well, Daniel, when he was a couple miles in front of me, he stopped and talked to some snowmobilers and they were asking him if he'd seen any bears because you know, they were going to start bear hunting next week and they'd heard they've been coming out. But I, I think those are mostly the um, black bears or grizzly yeah. bears. Um, you know, I think come, come to find out around Nome, they might get a bear or two, oh, but okay. not much further South. I think do, do the polar bears ever, ever come, um, you know, so leading, leading up to this race, I think a lot of the veterans offer up a lot of information and you can take a lot of it with a grain of a grain of salt. Um, and now, now kind of that, you know, that you can kind of laugh a little bit more about, you know, they got people fired up about like the first 15 miles of this race. Like you won't believe where people were, you know, dropping out at the last minute to losing their $1,200 because you know they're so worried about the the water on the course because leading up to the race it was they got some snow and then it got really warm so all this melted and was on top of the ice and it had been like middle 30s for the week before well two days before the race it got cold and everything froze so it went from thinking you're going to be walking through needy water for 15 miles to it wasn't a big deal at all but it got a lot of people that had never been up there really nervous and fired up about it that it seemed to just consume people's worrisome and you know i i i knew stuff always changed so i just kept telling people you know wait wait till you get to connect at noon and you got two hours and figure out what you're yeah. going to do what you're going to do two hours before the race starts because then everything can change you know you can plan have one plan and you know, until the race starts, you know, the weather can change. This can change. It just changes so fast up there and, um, just don't stress out about it. Yeah. Would you say like adaptability is one of the biggest strengths that you can bring to this race? Yeah. I, I, I think the ability to adapt and, and overall just to ha- just to have a good attitude, Yeah, you know, you're like, I'm going up there to have fun. Like, you know, how often am I going to get a 26, 
day vacation ever in my life until I, I don't know, 80, you know, so <laughs> it's, it's why, why not make it as, as enjoyable as I can. Yeah, no, I love that. It's kind of like, I mean, based off of just t- talking to you today, like listening to this, it's like adaptability, positivity, and then like compartmentalizing, which I can never say, I can never say that word, but that whole thing is those are like three huge skills to bring to the table. Yeah. 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 That's awesome. Well, I saw a picture of this, of a crack in the sea ice, um, has to be a little bit intimidating. Uh, was it intimidating in the moment or were you just like, here's another thing. All right. Like, uh, no, you know, it's frozen shut. It's, yeah. uh, two years before, I believe that was the area that, that all broke up and people weren't able to, to, to get through, um, you know, and a musher had pushed their button that they were halfway across and, you know, up to their waist in water and needed a, a helicopter to come and rescue them. You know, that's all in your mind, but it, yeah. it, uh, you, you know, you're, you're there and it's just, it, every, everything, the, the level of risk just seems to go out the window. It's just, it was already risky to start. You're already so high up in the risk factor, like a crack in the ice is, is nothing, you, you, you know, you, you, you start looking around and be like, well, if this breaks up, I'll probably just find a big chunk of ice and stand on it until I get helped or, yeah, you know, everything just is, whereas if it was just your day hike, you might be like, oh, no, no, not going to do that. But when you're so far into this, into this journey, you've already gone through so many risky situations that it's just, just another, you know, brick in the wall kind of. Yeah. Kind of thing it was just you know it's neat to see amazing to imagine the power and god when that thing broke you, you know i'm i'm sure it was loud as loud as can be it has to be crazy but then you know you there it did come you know the wind had blown and it had frozen back together and you know you see 50 more of them and it's just another yeah just just another day so it's um you know there's there's so many firsts that that were in these you know 26 and five hours or whatever of the race for me that it was just like, you know, just another, just another tool in the toolbox kind of. Yeah. That's dude. That's amazing. Well, so what did it like did gnome you're as you're getting there? I mean, it has to be weird going from, I've been, my mind's been somewhat focused on this for years now. And then all of a sudden you're getting close to that finish line. Like how did you feel in those days or hours like leading up to getting there um you know i would say the most emotional part for me was probably when the first um when the first dogs came through so that would have been like i don't know day 10 or something yeah and then kind of once we got brought across the sea ice i want i don't want to say you you've kind of become numb but you've pretty much ran your your emotional thing and it's and it's, uh, you know, I'm, you know, you're, once you get across the sea ice, you're pretty confident that, you know, you're going to get there. You just don't know in how many days it's going to take you to get there. And, um, and then by the time you're, you're walking into Nome, um, you, you know, you're just, you've, you've gone through so many emotions and, and highs and lows that now it's almost like everything's just on a, a steady line. You, you know, you're, you're super excited to be there, but yet your heart isn't racing anymore. Or, you know, the thought of going up and over this hill doesn't drop you down into this, 
you know, funk or, or, or something to that extent. It's just, you, you know, your, your confidence level is, is just at an all time high. And then um, the funny thing is, is there's a race called Hitchcock in Iowa. And I don't know, five or six years ago running that, I met a, a girl in the middle of the night, you know, on one of the hills out there. And I'd always say, you know, great work. And she'd always reply, you, you know, you too. And come to find out, you know, she's, she lives in Nome and, um, no yeah. And we've stayed, stayed in touch. Um, her name's Carol and uh, she's got a really cool story. And uh, so I'd sent her a message, you know, being like, you know, I'm coming, coming to Nome to visit. And um, as we were getting there, all of, all of a sudden we were sitting on the last hill kind of, you know, the last, the last high point we we're looking down at Nome and, you know, we see someone running on the, on the trail towards us about four miles outside of town. And I was like, Oh, I bet you that's, that's my friend Carol, you know? So we'd sled down this little hill and we get to the bottom and, you know, it was her and hugged and talked. And then she, um, they have a different cell service out there, uh, GSI or something like that. So she then FaceTimed, um, my wife and, uh, you know, so it was kind of like, walk alongside of us, you know, showing Emily, you know, what we were doing and chatting with her. And um, so, so that was really neat. And she, she's, you know, stayed with us a couple of miles and then ran back in, back into town. So it was, you know, it was kind of neat. And, um, you know, friend Daniel's like, geez, you know, you're Mr. Popular, huh? And uh, it was just, it was really nice. You know, you felt like um, you just kind of felt like no one was home kind of. Yeah kind of thing so that's so amazing cool. you're you might have been the only person on the whole course who actually knew somebody in Nome you know I, I would say for the most part but if you've been there four or five times uh, then um, you know people then then you know people you only have to go to Nome once to meet people you know and those people will be I'd imagine your friends for for the rest of your life there's there's just so many so many great people in Nome and we got close to the finish line and you know this guy comes over with this kitchen bag and he's like oh I'm good friends with Carol you know I'm the local dentist in town she said her friend was coming in so I made you this like Japanese stir fry with rice and what um and a box of Girl Scout cookies <laughs> and you're just like oh my gosh like like that's so awesome and you know he stayed to the finish line took pictures and um it, it, it was just great. And then he's, you know, we're chatting with him and he's like, um, can we, you, do you want to do lunch or dinner tomorrow? I'd love to hear more about it, you know? And I was like, oh, he's getting the bug, you know, he's, he's going to want to sign up and, and do the thousand to know him. And he's just, turns out he's a, just a phenomenal ski, skier. So I think, I think next year, the year after he'll, you know, be in the 350 to, to do the skiing, but he ended up taking, you know, the next day we went out and met him for, for dinner and, you know, he ended up paying for, for our whole dinner bill. He was just, it was like, Oh, you don't have to do that. And he's like, no, 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 no. You know, I want to do this. And, you know, and then um, we, we stayed in an Airbnb or a bed and breakfast kind of place. And, you know, the people that hosted us cooked us this huge um, everybody's into sourdough up there. You know, they've had these starters that have been in the family for 50 yeah. years or, or whatnot. What? They cooked us these sourdough pancakes the next morning. They, all they wanted to hear about was, you know, our, our time on the trail and our experiences. And all we want to ask him is like, what's it like to live in Nome? You know, <laughs> yeah. um, just this 
kind of crazy village on the on the coast and um you know just being isolated and, and whatnot you know they have they have a you basically have to pay like five grand and put a car on a barge in fairbanks or so and they ship this barge over to nome and the car drives off and then out of nome i don't even know if there's 50 or 60 miles of paved road wow around the whole thing and that's kind of the life of a car so wow man dude yeah that is that is so wild i yeah i came and i can't even begin to imagine and i'm very curious how carol ended up in the race in iowa she i i don't know how she, i don't know how she picked that one you know maybe it was because it's in december so she's not even going to somewhere warm she's going to somewhere cold <laughs> Yeah, but she's like, hey, hey, man, I live in Nome, like Iowa. Come on, this is it. Yeah, cool. <laughs> I, I don't know, but she's been there like three, three years in a row. She wow. was, she was there. So, and you know, we've just kept in, kept in touch ever since. She's actually going to be running in, uh, running the Leadville Hundred this year. No way. So, yep. If you're if you're around Leadville for that week, um, I might be. I might be. I have. I might have plans to actually be up there for once, which would be super fun. Oh, just yeah, amazing. My, I think my wife and I will be there, and we're, we're gonna oh. we're gonna help her out or pace her a little bit if needed. Nice. Then we have some other friends. So if you want to pace, we've got tons of people in it. And then also Emily's trying to get into. She's on like a couple down on the wait list for High Lonesome, which we think she'll get into. Ooh. So if you're around for High Lonesome weekend, okay. All right, man. Let me know for sure. Yeah, yeah. For sure. Dude, that's so amazing, man. And I'm sure, I mean, I, I think I might've said this on a podcast recently, but I'm like, you know, is an hour to tell a story that took 26 days, you know, like there's no way you covered everything or, or, and I'm not even sure. Like, do you, do you think you've begun to process like what you, how you grew or like what you learned from this race? Uh, I know, but it, you know, you do it a couple of times. It gets a lot easier. Like at first you're just when people are like, Oh yeah, I get it. You're just like, no, you don't, you know? And they're like, no, I think I understand. And you're like, no, you don't. And, you know? And now after the third time, it's a lot easier to let that go and just be like, yeah, they understand some, some right. stuff, but yeah. not exactly, you yeah. know, but that's okay. You, yeah. you know? Um, so, so there's that, uh, but I, I don't I don't know if you'll if I don't know when the bell will go off with, you know, when it really sinks in what the race meant to me or or how it changed me or, you know, going forward, how am I a different person? Um, you know, I, I, I don't know when you realize that or if that's just like a slow accumulation over over time of you just, you know, making making changes. But, you know, you definitely think about out there like, you know, how, how to be a better person and and you know, how to treat people differently and, you know, and, and other stuff like that. So yeah, that's amazing, man. Well, dude, once again, man, like, honestly, you've been one of my favorite guests I've ever had on the show. And I really, really appreciate everything. Like, I don't know if people realize this, but you've recommended so many amazing people and like put me in contact with them. So not only your stories, but like, some of my favorite episodes have been from people you recommended. So I really appreciate it, dude. It's been amazing. So uh huge congrats though. Like I know this has been a, a dream like years and years in the making and you got it done, which is incredible. Yeah. Well, you know, thanks a lot. And, and you know, thanks for taking so many of my suggestions. I really appreciate that. And um, still looking forward to that desert 
desert rats film oh man i'll I'll update you as soon as we're done but i'm i'm excited dude honestly it's the it's in a weird way it's probably been my gnome for the last two years Uh, (laughs) um and i've been able to use a lot of lessons from ultra running which has been really cool um and also at the same time it's been the hardest thing i think i've ever easily the hardest creative project i've ever worked on so I'm and I'm very proud of it where we are. Um, we have a few more finishing touches and stuff, but yeah, man. So I appreciate it, dude. Thank you. Oh, no problem. No problem. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm excited. So. All right. Well, I'm excited to talk with you after whatever your next humongous adventure is. I'm psyched. Sounds good. All right. All righty. That wraps up this week's episode. Thank you so much, Ryan, for coming on the show. I am honored uh, to be able to share a little bit of your experience and your stories and hopefully everyone listening hopefully you're inspired to set a big goal for yourself or to like fearlessly pursue an adventure or fearlessly pursue something that's going to enrich your life in some sort of way and and just bring you joy bring you motivation and just let you experience all that life has to offer. I know that when I talk to Ryan, that's how I feel every single time I get off the call with him. Um, I'm like, man, I'm just ready to like go on out and like take on, take on the world. So a couple of notes after the episode one, I did look up the peace on earth pizza Yelp reviews and they're great reviews as they should be because if you're making just great pizza and you're the only town or village in miles and miles and miles and miles people need to be giving you five stars that's all I'm gonna say so peace on earth pizza someday I would love to uh, be able to experience the yumminess of of Alaskan pizza on the side of the ocean. Oh man, that just sounds amazing. Like that part just sounded, it's one of those unique things where you're like, this is the only time I'm probably ever going to be having this meal and doing this during this experience and then having plum brandy from one of the other racers at the same time. Like, I don't know why, but that's probably one of those really memorable parts of this experience uh because you're like this is this is only happening right now like this I won't be able to ever reenact this uh which I think is a part of of an adventure or a journey that is so important you're just like man this is something that I'll never get to experience in this way again which is really cool um and I also thought afterwards, when I was talking to him, he talked about kind of like three ideas where it was like adaptability being huge, obviously, um, and then positivity and optimism kind of being in there as well to get you through. I mean, a 26-day journey is a long journey. That's a long time to be striving for one goal. and And then also just like the idea of, breaking it down into the smaller chunks 
so I think if you're listening and you are interested in something like this, or if you're listening and you're like, man, I'm going to run the Iditarod next year, those three things probably are three foundations amongst like obviously all the billion little details that I don't know because I've never experienced it, right? But those three foundational parts really in any uh, ultra endurance or any just long journey or, or just even goal setting in in, uh, in general, that's what I relate to. Like the idea of being adaptable, being positive, and then uh, breaking down the goal into like smaller, more achievable goals. That is so huge. And you hear that from so many people in so many different ways and so many different experiences um, that I think after doing this podcast for for a while, uh, that's kind of like almost like the core of what a lot of these people show as strengths um, who are able to go out there and do these these adventures. So um, something to work on. So adaptability, positivity, and uh just breaking it into smaller chunks um but i think that's it next week oh if you like the episode at the end of the episode ryan starts talking about his friend carol who came out and joined him uh who lives in Nome. and next week we are doing a podcast with carol she is amazing i cannot wait to share her story um so come back next week it's going to be a great one and until then i hope you all have a wonderful week